Welcome to the Walk Worthy Podcast, a podcast by Hespler Baptist Church, located in Cambridge, Ontario. Our local church exists to make disciples who walk worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of God the Father. We hope and pray that this is an encouragement to you and to anyone else you share this with. Thank you, Scott, for leading us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, that by His grace at the proper time He might lift us up. And I trust and hope and pray that that wasn't just mere lips, which is easy to sing, but that that was an expression of each of our hearts, my own included, as we continue in worship this morning. My father-in-law leaned over to me as we were singing Ferris Lord Jesus, by the way, and he said, I remember singing that song in about grade three in school. May God rend the heavens and come down and give revival to our land, given how far we have come. Back in March of this year, for the second time in history, a record three people finished one of the world's toughest races. The location is the Cumberland Mountains in Frozen Head State Park in Tennessee. I quote, the race consists of five loops of around 20 miles each for a total of between 100 to 130 miles through brushy mountains with an elevation gain of around 63,000 feet. No phones are allowed, no aid from GPS, and the checkpoints are unmanned. You are on your own. Runners must complete this ultramarathon in under 60 hours over three sleepless days and nights. And since the inaugural event in 1986, only 17 individuals have done so. In the last five years, no one has. And in 2017, Gary Robbins from Vancouver came as close as he could. On his fifth and final lap, at the final checkpoint, he was on track to finish with five minutes to spare until he took a wrong turn. For the last two miles of the race, he was off course. When he collapsed over the finish line, trembling on the ground, head in his hands, wife by his side, consoling him, he choked out the words, I went the wrong way. And he was notified by the pioneer of this event that he was disqualified. Now, by all assessments, what Gary accomplished was an, an astonishing, respectable feat. He ran the distance. He was only seconds over the 60-hour time limit. He's been an inspiration to many. No one could question his capacity as an ultra-marathoner. Yet, though he still finished, he nevertheless did not receive the prize for which he ran. Can you imagine the feeling of putting in all that time, all that training, all that effort, all that planning, all that money, all those steps, just to be disqualified at the end, to get to the finish line, but without the prize. When it comes to the ultramarathon that is the Christian race, the Apostle Paul wrote once to a church so that they would be spared such an experience. 
the experience of finishing our race as believers in Christ, but not receiving the fullness of reward that we can have. Of ourselves being saved by God's grace, but the work of our lives being burned up. All because we took wrong turns, failing to heed the warnings and teachings of God's word as we seek to walk worthy of the gospel. We'll all get to the end by God's grace in Christ. We'll all come to the finish line of life, whether we're a Christian or not. And if that is some of you in this room today who are listening as someone who's not a Christian, when you get to the end of life, if you do in a Christless state, that should cause you to tremble. To stand before God to give an account for our sin without the hope of mercy because you refuse the gift of God's grace. And that will be agony forever. It need not be so. Like many in this room, you could trust Christ even today and be saved. And even still, there would be an account to give of ourselves, not before the great white throne of God's judgment, but before the judgment seat of Christ. There, our works will be evaluated, and then, by God's grace, we will receive our commendation from the Lord. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus Yet still, we want to live and walk and talk and act and give and serve in such a way as to receive the greater commendation as we run our race. The prospect of this is what prompted Paul to write these words to the church in Corinth, which come right before the text I'm about to preach. I'll tell you where that is in a minute. This is what he says. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So, he says, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, to summarize what Paul goes on to write in our text for today, running toward our eternal prize means fleeing idolatry. Loving, pursuing, taking comfort in, serving, cherishing anyone or anything else over and above God is one of those wrong turns to avoid at all costs. Running toward our eternal prize means fleeing idolatry. And this is not some ancient problem. The human heart is an idol factory, as has been said. We were made to worship, but in our sin, constantly battling, battling and dwelling sin, even as Christians, with the world around us and the devil tempting, wrong turns of idolatry abound. As Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, the problem was that there was too much Corinth in the church which is a danger to all churches in all times and in all places. So as we run toward our eternal prize, we must flee idolatry. And the text we're about to read gives three motivations for doing so, the third leading us directly to the Lord's table, which is why this text was chosen as we sort of pause our sermon series on Communion Sundays to focus more explicitly on the Lord's table. We'll see how that gets us there as we read the text. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10. I read 1 Corinthians 9, the last 
four verses, but 1 Corinthians 10 is a continuation of the thought. So turn with me there. I'm sorry I didn't mark the, the, the page in the Pew Bible this morning, but there's a contents, page of contents, so you can look there. It's near the end, so here's my Bible. It's this way. Uh, it's near the end. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to read 1 to 22. 957. Thank you, Keith, one of our elders on it. Thank you. Let me pray before I read this passage for us. Lord, we know for our Savior taught us that we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. Help us to hear and receive the reading of your word now as coming from you. Give us ears to hear what the Holy Spirit would say to us as a church. And would you nourish us, not only as we feast on your word, but as we feast around the table, as this sermon will lead us to do so. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1 begins, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness." Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved... Flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? 
Are we stronger than he? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we run toward our eternal prize, here's our first motivation to flee idolatry. Why Idolatry is always possible. I want you to understand that. We must flee idolatry because the threat is always there. It's always something to run from. The potential to fall into idolatry is closer than we think. So we should be motivated to flee it because it's always possible. And if we don't, we may be overtaken by a sin that provokes our Lord to jealousy and to his discipline. To a church that thinks they know a lot, that is Corinth, Paul writes in verse 1, for, he's building on the theme of what came prior, writing in a way not to be disqualified, for I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers, he writes, he continues, were all under the cloud. So as we go through Exodus, we've not gotten there yet, but I trust that many of you know they were led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The presence of God was over and behind and in front of them. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses and the cloud and the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. So think manna and quail. All drank the same spiritual drink. Think water from the rock. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. So as Paul is introducing this theme to the the Corinthians at this point, uh, he is using what we would call typology to connect the old covenant salvation event in Exodus through Moses to the new covenant salvation event from sin and Satan and death through Christ. And note that he uses the phrase, our fathers, to a Gentile audience, which is an interesting point of continuity between Israel and the church. And Christians have differences on the degrees of that, but nevertheless, as one writer puts it, their story is our story. That's what he's saying, our fathers. Now, this and more would have perked up the ears of the Corinthian church. In the old covenant salvation event, the Israelites were baptized into Moses. He was the instrument God used to redeem them. In the new covenant salvation event, we have been baptized into Christ. You see, he's drawing connections. In the old covenant salvation event, the Israelites were sustained by food, supplied by spiritual means, by God himself. Bread came down from heaven. Water was supplied by spiritual means from a rock, which Paul identifies here as Christ. At the beginning of their journey towards the promised land, and at the end of their journey towards, uh, into the promised land, water came from a rock. And undoubtedly, throughout their journey, water was continually supplied by the Lord. And when Paul is looking back on this event in light of who Jesus Christ is, the great I Am himself, who took on flesh, He can rightly look back and say, that was Christ. Christ was the one who was working and supplying, nourishing, sustaining, feeding, because Christ is the Lord. Now, in the New Covenant salvation event, we also have eaten of the bread of life, who is Jesus himself. To us, he has become as living water. To us, we drink from the cup of the New Covenant in his blood. And so what happened to Israel were the types of what was to come. What happens to us in Christ is the antitype, it's the fullness, it's the substance. 
And so Paul is connecting these two to say, look at the spiritual pedigree of our fathers through the Exodus. It was astonishing. They were led out of Egypt from slavery. They went through the water on dry land. Moses led them. God fed them. Their spiritual pedigree was magnificent. And now he's saying ours is even greater. Because the fullness of all of that has now been realized in Christ. But look at what he says in verse 5. Nevertheless, this is a strong contrast here. Despite all, notice the repetition of that word in verses 1 to 4, despite all experiencing deliverance out of Egypt, despite all enjoying miraculous provision in the desert, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, that's an understatement. The only people who made it into the promised land of that generation were two Joshua and Caleb, the rest were strewn about in the desert. It's quite a vivid image. And Paul is writing all of this to sober up the Corinthian church and us, as this serves as an example, as a warning, that despite spiritual pedigree, despite the experiences that we have had in the new covenant mirrored in the experiences in the old covenant that our fathers had, this is an example. Do not crave evil as they idolatrously craved in the wilderness. For even though they had seen and experienced the old covenant salvation event of the Exodus, most of them didn't go into the promised land. And in Paul's language at the end of 1 Corinthians 9, they did not run in a way to receive the prize. They were disqualified. Even Moses didn't get to go in. So despite spiritual pedigree, the lesson of history teaches us of the constant threat of idolatry. It's always possible. And so we must flee that as we run toward our eternal prize. And Paul gives four examples of this in verses 7 through 10. The first example is the account Pastor Kevin read from Exodus 32, the golden calf debacle. These are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. Are you kidding me? So Paul writes, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The second example in verse 8 is based on Numbers 25 which reads in part, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people bowed down to their gods. You might be wondering, how do we get from idolatry, which seems to be kind of the fountainhead of the sins that follow, how do we get uh, from idolatry to sexual sin? Well, they're often connected in the scriptures. Even in Exodus 32, this imagery of play that might have had some sensuality, some sexual immorality connoted with it. And given what we see worshipped in our own culture today, there's no surprise that much of the sin of our present moment on full display during so-called Pride Month is sexual in nature. The idolatry of Corinth and sinful expressions of sexuality would have gone hand in hand as well. And nothing has changed in that regard. The third example in verse 9 is based on Numbers 21, 
where the people speak against God and against Moses, I'm quoting the scriptures here, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? We don't really like the way that you've saved us, God. There's no food and there's no water, and we loathe this worthless food, speaking about what God has provided. But rather than trust God's astonishing provision, they were looking back to Egypt. How often do we treat what God has done for us in Christ as nothing when we long for the former life of slavery he delivered us from? The fourth example in verse 10 is based on number 16, which reads, In part, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of Yahweh. Apparently, they didn't agree with God's judgment against the rebellion of Korah. And every time we grumble, every time God does something that we don't like, we are implying that we know better than God, that our way would be better than God's way, which sounds like a subtle way of elevating ourselves above God, which is back to idolatry. All of these, Paul writes again in verse 11, happened to them as an example. And by God's grace have been written down for our instruction, for us, on whom the end of the ages has come in that there's only one chapter left before the eternal state. And despite all of this, despite verses 1 through 4, this, uh, the spiritual pedigree of those who went through the Exodus event, as history shows us, idolatry is always right there. It's always possible. Thus, we must flee from it. Thus, we provoke the Lord to jealousy and experience his discipline. And if we think we're immune to falling into the same sin as God's past covenant people, think again. Paul writes in verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. The possibility of taking a, a wrong turn into idolatry exists for God's covenant people today as God's covenant people in the past. Outright idolatry is a temptation. Sexual immorality is a temptation. Putting Christ to the test is a temptation. Grumbling is a temptation. Thus, the commands do not be idolaters. We must not indulge in sexual immorality. We must not put Christ to the test. We must not grumble. Running toward our eternal prize involves constantly fleeing idolatry. That's what it means. But if we don't think it's a danger, we're dangerously exposed. Idolatry is always possible. Now, since that's true, if it's always a threat, if it's always a potential, what hope do we have? What point is there in fleeing something that is seemingly never removed as a potential of falling headlong into? If you're asking that question, you'll be helped by the second motivation to flee idolatry. Idolatry is always possible, yes, but idolatry is always escapable. There is always a way out. Idolatry is always escapable. Look with me at verse 13. These are words worthy of memorization. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to men. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to 
endure it. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm tempted to sin, when we're tempted to sin, and we give into those temptations to sin, and we need to repent and look again to the cross, I think I can feel sorry for myself. I think sometimes we can feel sorry for ourselves, and we might try to find justification or comfort by saying, well, I just have it harder than everyone else does. Or that particular temptation is more difficult for me to resist than it is that person, so I kind of let myself off the hook a little bit. Or if it wasn't for my upbringing, or if it wasn't for my experiences, I just wouldn't struggle so much with that. It's just harder for me. As though that makes it any better, but we do this. Now, what that line of thinking does is actually give greater power to temptation than Scripture. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 assures us that what we face is similar to everyone else. It's not normal, but it's common. We're not somehow uniquely evil. We shouldn't wander around terrified that we're somehow unusually tempted to sin in ways that no one ever has or ever will be again. Are you tempted to love and cherish and prize and put other things before God? So is everyone else. Are you tempted to indulge in sexual immorality in one form or another? I would think very, very few who have walked this earth have not. Are you tempted to push Christ to the limits of his grace and mercy and patience by seeing how far you can go towards and over the line of sin before he responds with loving discipline? Who of us has not bargained with God in some way or shape or form like this? Are you tempted to grumble against God's purposes and his sovereignty and his timing and his ways and the situations that he puts you into that you would not have chosen for yourself? Surely all have done this. The story is told of the Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane being congratulated one day on his saintliness by a member of his congregation. And his sharp reply back was, Madam, if you could see into my heart, you would spit in my face. But if he could have seen into hers, he might have done the same. And so it would be true for all of us. We're all in the same boat here. And the encouragement of this is that we're not helpless when faced with temptation that's common for all. Because we don't need anything more than God's supplies to overcome what is common to all. Verse 13 continues... God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Idolatry, temptation to sin is always escapable because God is always faithful. Church, please hear me on this. He will never leave us powerless. He will never leave us resourceless. He will never leave us helpless. He doesn't lead us down dead end alleys of temptation. There's no ifs or ands or buts about that. He is faithful. He will always provide a way out. Always. And let me show you how important it is that we believe this, especially when the cost of fleeing the idolatry of the culture around us grows greater. And to do that, let's put ourselves back into the shoes of a member of the Church of Corinth just to see how much we have in common with them, actually. These are not my words I'm quoting here. Avoiding all overt associations with idolatry would invite hostility, especially when one was a guest at the home of a religiously-minded host who offered food that had been sanctified by an idol. If the host was your boss, one's refusal 
to engage in this idolatry could be taken as a grave insult, and that could have financial retribution. If the host was a family member or a neighbor, the refusal, again, to engage in idolatry of the culture could result in being cast into the outer darkness of social banishment. I quote, in the face of such pressure, Christians would be tempted to compromise and rationalize their decisions. Peter puts it in these words in 1 Peter 4, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. He says in verse 12, Do not be surprised, beloved, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Whether the the trial comes from outside or whether it's from inward temptation to sin, there will always be a way out provided for us so that we do not take these wrong turns in the directions that God does not call us to go. And in those moments, do not be surprised when such difficulties tempt us to compromise in all the ways the Israelites did in the past. We need to trust, brothers and sisters, that God will give us a way of escape when we're toying with spiritual adultery, with cheating on God. God tells us in his word that when you're invited to celebrate Pride Month at school, he will provide you a way to be faithful, to say no, even if you might lose friends and status as a result. God tells us in his word that when you're invited on a work trip to Vegas, no wives allowed, I heard a story about this recently happening to someone. God will provide us with a way of being faithful, even if it means we lose our job, which is what happened in that situation. But the person was faithful to God and to their spouse. Our culture is not that different from Corinth. The idols of our culture are deeply embedded, and any rejection of them will invite serious blowback. And the temptations to compromise are therefore common, especially when they appeal to the flesh. Idolatry is always possible, but is always escapable. All we have to do is look for the way of escape that God provides, and as verse 14 indicates, we bolt through it. But too often... We see the way God provides, and we don't take the off-ramp, do we? I can think of times, I'm sure you can too, when you knew what you were about to do was sinful. When you could see the way God was providing a way out, and you ignored this incredible, gracious provision. Brothers and sisters, when the Spirit convicts us of sinful desire, pay attention, that is God's way out. God is proving himself faithful. When a sermon strikes right at your heart as you're on the brink of making a sinfully disastrous decision and it seems like the preacher somehow knows what's going on inside of you, pay attention. That is God's way out. He is proving himself faithful. When scripture flashes through your mind, speaking directly to the temptation that you face, pay attention. That's a way out. God is proving himself faithful. When God sends another brother or sister your way to talk you out of the sinfully mad path you're on, pay attention. That's a way out. He's proving himself faithful. When a church 
obediently follows Jesus' instruction for church discipline as a spiritual flashbang to stop you in your tracks. Pay attention. That's a way out. God is proving himself faithful. He works in these ways and so many more because he is always going to give us a way out. It's always escapable for God is always faithful. We could never charge him with abandoning us. Rather, as one individual writes, the problem lies with us, for the path of escape is often a path we are unwilling to take. Yet we must, Paul says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Do you hear his pastoral heart for those that he writes to? My beloved, he calls them. His warning, his command, his urgency, he's speaking the truth to them in this matter is born of deep affection for this church. He doesn't want them to get to the end of the race with regret. He doesn't want them to experience God's discipline on the way. He wants them to run in such a manner that there will be works to show and much commendation to receive. And so he speaks to them in love and out of love. She also speaks to them respectfully as he continues in verse 15. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. And then he proceeds to give a third motivation for fleeing idolatry, which running toward our eternal prize requires. The first is that idolatry is always possible, so we must be constantly fleeing, as he commands in verse 14. The second is that idolatry is always escapable, gives us confidence that our fleeing it will be successful because God is faithful and will provide a way out. And the third motivation is that idolatry is always incompatible. Our worship of Christ, our allegiance to Christ is incompatible with worship and allegiance and satisfaction and anything else. There's no room for any other master or Lord in this relationship than Jesus. Idolatry is always incompatible with fellowship with Christ. Now, as we go into this section dealing with the Lord's Supper, I find David Garland's summary helpful as we think about this whole food issue in Corinth, because it goes on for three chapters, actually. I'm quoting here, Paul's lengthy discussion of idol food is grounded in his Christological monotheism which defines the people of God over against those who worship many so-called gods and lords in their sundry guise or in their uh, various forms. He says, as a cosmopolitan city, Corinth was a religious melting pot. With older and newer religions flourishing side by side, most persons could accommodate all gods and goddesses into their religious behavior. And they could choose from a great cafeteria line of religious practices. The Christian confession of one God and one Lord, however, requires exclusive loyalty to God as Father and to Christ as Lord. That is what Paul is imparting here in this whole section in his letter. And to demonstrate how incompatible idolatry is with worship of, uh, of God in Christ, he turns his attention to, uh, and the church's attention and our own attention to the Lord's table, which is relevant for what we'll do in a few moments. Listen to what he writes in verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? 
Richard Barcelos writes that this may be the most important text on the nature of the Lord's Supper as a means of grace in the New Testament, certainly in Paul's letters. The reason for this is the intended resounding yes to the two questions that he asks. Yes, the cup of blessing that we bless is a participation of the blood of Christ. Yes, the bread that we break is a participation of the body of Christ as it could be translated. And the word participation is actually a Greek word that you've probably heard before. It's koinia. It's fellowship. It's sharing. It is participation here in the ESV. And Paul's argument against idolatry that he makes in this section is rooted in his teaching that there is communion with Christ as we eat and drink at the Lord's table. Something vertical is going on here. Something vertical is happening between the Lord Jesus and his people as we eat of the bread and as we drink of the cup. Now, of course, something horizontal is happening as well, as verse 17 indicates. Together, as we eat of this one bread that is Christ who nourishes us at his communion table, we have fellowship with one another. We are one body. So there is something vertical going on, which is why one chapter later he tells us that we should care for one another as we come to the Lord's table. There should be a unity and a harmony and a peace among brothers and sisters when we eat of this one bread, which is Christ. But that's not all that's going on here. And if this is not true, if there's not something vertical going on, if there's not actual communion with the Lord at the table we're about to eat and drink from, Paul's argument makes no sense. He says, listen, what is true at the table of the Lord was true, in a sense, in the Old Testament sacrifices. So think about Israel again for a second here. When they would bring their offerings, some of the offerings they would eat from, indicating that they were having table fellowship with Yahweh. There was a relationship that was going on here that was indicated in the sharing of a meal. And what is true at the altar of Yahweh is also true in the expressions of idol worship. You see, what Paul is writing is that since we commune with Christ at the table, we have no business eating and drinking from the table of idols, which the Corinthians were doing. And thus, they were participating with demons, which is idolatry. That, after all, is what idols are, is what false gods are. They're not truly gods, which is why Paul writes, what do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. There aren't actually multiple gods that exist. He says, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God, I do not want you to be participants with demons. So that's what idols are manifestations of fallen angels arrayed against God to lie and steal and kill and destroy and confuse humans and lead them away from the truth that is of salvation that is in Christ. Every time you see it, every temple you drive by, every tarot card promotion sign that you see, all of that is the sort of covert warfare of the father of lies. C. 
seeking to deceive and bring as many down with him as he can. If you don't believe in Christ, you are caught up in that. And the worship of those who are not worshiping the one true God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, is sacrificing and offering to demons. It's just that plain. It's just that clear. It's just that simple. It won't be popular, but this is what Scripture says. And in no uncertain terms, as worshipers of Christ, we cannot have any fellowship with those who are against him, with those that he actually came to deliver us from and those he came to destroy. We have participation with Christ. And then to think of engaging in forms of worship and sacrifice and service to demons masquerading as the all sorts of various idols that's really quite sickening when you think it through. In a few moments, we are going to experience one of the greatest blessings and celebrations of Christians since the institution of the supper by our Lord. We will raise the cup of blessing. We will bless the Lord for the cup and all that the blood of Christ shed for us means. And we will drink not only in remembrance, but for spiritual nourishment. We drink as those who actually share in Christ's blood, in the benefits of Christ's blood, which brings us into fellowship with the crucified, risen Savior in our observing of it. This new covenant meal is an expression of our union with Christ. And in this meal, he is present at the table, not in a Roman Catholic understanding as though the bread and the body become the actual body and blood of our Lord and his sacrifice is reenacted. I don't believe either it's in the way that Luther taught as though the bread and wine coexist with the body and blood of Christ at the table. Rather, to express what I believe Paul is teaching here about the Lord's Supper to use a Reformed phrase long and historically held by our Baptist forebears, there is a real presence. He is present with us in our eating and our drinking. And the point being made, I quote from this text, is that the bread and wine are signs which signify present participation or present communion in the present benefits procured by Christ's body and blood. Grace procured by what Christ did becomes ours through the supper. It is a means of grace. If this wasn't true in some way, which I confess to not understanding the fullness of this mystery, then how could Paul write that we have fellowship with him on the occasion of drinking the cup? Likewise, we eat as those who actually share in Christ's body and the benefits of his death on our behalf, which again brings us into fellowship with the crucified, risen Savior. This is more than a memorial meal. Again, I quote, the believer shares in all the benefits of Christ's sacrifice. Partaking of the bread and wine is union sharing with the heavenly Christ. 
As Spurgeon put it, at this table, Jesus feeds us with his body and his blood. And while our bodies eat, our souls are nourished through faith as a gift of Christ's Spirit with whom we have fellowship. And I submit to you, brothers and sisters, that that is a delightful thought. We have union expressed in our communion at the table of our Lord, whose body was broken for us, whose precious blood was spilled for us so that he might be with us and so that we might be with him, so that we might be united to him, so that we might be one with him. And as one with him, sustained and strengthened until we sit down with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And what Paul is writing here, we can conclude, again, as another has written, through the Lord's Supper, God does something. As Bavink says, of primary importance in the Lord's Supper is what God does, not what we do. So many of us come to this table as though we have to have attained a certain standard or gone through hoops of righteousness in order to benefit from the means of grace that the Lord's table is to us, and that's not how it works. The Lord's Supper is above all a gift of God, a benefit of Christ, a means of communicating His grace, Bavink goes on to say. Grace from Christ in heaven is communicated to believers on the earth by the Holy Spirit through the Lord's Supper. And so Paul is saying, if that's what's happening, and I believe that's what he's meaning here, then what business do we have? What business do we have going from this table to feast at what? idols behind which our demons would offer. Are we going to come to this table today and, and tomorrow willingly and unthinkingly serve the gods of self or sex or accomplishment of our culture? Are we going to share in the new life we have with Christ, renewing the covenantal vows we made in baptism, coming to him for worship and fellowship and nourishment only to return like a dog to its vomit this evening by accessing another porn video on our phone? This is the stark contrast that Paul is highlighting here. Idolatry in all its various forms is incompatible with the glorious richness of fellowship that we have with the living Christ expressed and experienced at the table. No wonder Paul writes in verses 20 and 21, I do not want you to be a participant with demons. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And we ignore this urgent warning and command to run toward our eternal prize by fleeing from idolatry at great cost. One chapter later, in picking up their practice of the Lord's Supper in Corinth, Paul writes that some have provoked the Lord to jealousy, demonstrating that we are most certainly not stronger than he. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Ignoring this is what led to Paul's next observation in the church in Corinth. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. You see, brothers and sisters, the Lord himself desires that we should come before his throne of grace that we should finish our race, that we have much to receive his commendation over. Yet because God's love is rightly God-centered, make no mistake about this. And though God-centered, he catches us up into his love by the love he has shown us in giving his son and the pouring out of his spirit so that we are embraced in this Trinitarian love, his Trinitarian-focused but because there is no one like him, he will not stand idly by while we stumble into wrong turns of idolatrous practice. If we are bringing him into disrepute, especially of all places where we have fellowship with the risen Christ at the Lord's table, he will intervene with loving discipline. If we are causing others to falter and they're running toward our eternal prize, he'll intervene so that we do not get in their way, even if that means putting us onto a bed of sickness, even if that means putting us into an earlier grave. Yet before this, he gives us such clear, gracious warnings like 1 Corinthians 10, where we are urged to flee idolatry, which is always a possibility. Before this, he gives us gracious encouragement, assuring us of his faithfulness to always provide a way out. It is always escapable. And before this, he gives us gracious supply, such as we are about to experience together at the Lord's table which is not a reward for the strong, but is a nourishment for the weak. And so, brothers and sisters, let us then avail ourselves of this means of grace, of the means of grace of the Lord's table, as we run toward our eternal prize. We're going to sing again, and then I will lead us with those who will serve alongside as we eat and drink together.